Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brad. And this episode, we're discussing SST 198, the Henry Kaiser album, Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It. We love Henry on the show. Really looking forward to get into it. It is another weird and wild Kaiser record. And uh, actually, we'll get into it a bit uh, later on in the show. A very humbling listen for me, shall I say? Yeah. Spoiler, yeah, a very humbling listen. I uh, I made a huge mistake right off the bat <laughs> when I was listening to it. Um, right. But we'll we'll uh, we'll wait till we get there, and I'll, I'll just I'll reveal it all for everyone's enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, before we do that, though, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? All right, Ryan, I want to talk about the Beatles. Okay. Can you guess why I might be talking about the Beatles? No. Okay. Well, during our brief hiatus at the end of last year. Uh, like a lot of people, I watched the Peter Jackson Beatles oh, yeah. documentary, Get Back. Yeah, 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 right. All like eight and a half, nine hours of it. And? Well, it's kind of like a documentary about a documentary. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's no real narration, just some captions on the bottom of the screen that, you know, kind of tell you what's going on. It's more like just a huge dump of raw footage is what it is. Uh, sh- shot January 1969. So like the very end of the band, basically it documents them making what, you know, would become the Let It Be album and ends with the famous live set on the roof of their Apple building. Right. It's all pretty compelling stuff. John and Yoko are just, you know, joined at the hip. You see the, the kind of mounting frustration George Harrison had at this time. At one point he quits the band during the sessions. Like all good documentaries, you know, it had me revisit the Let It Be album. I am by no means a Beatles mega fan, but I do own all of their albums and a few of the members' solo albums. I'll definitely be picking up the super deluxe of Let It Be that just came mm. out. I'll probably wait for the price to go down a little bit. They recorded so much stuff during the sessions, like all together live off the floor. Definitely the documentary gives a new appreciation for that album for me and the band as musicians kind of gives a lot of insight into the band dynamic, the songwriting process, those amazing vocal harmonies, because they're all, it's all live. Even yeah. the vocals were recorded live. No R- auto-tune? No, <laughs> no. Uh, what? Ringo's timing as a drummer really kind of came to the fore. Like the perception of them kind of not as being a real band once they retired from touring is, I would say, dispelled. Like people forget including myself, the hundreds of shows they played before they got famous. Oh, what, like in Germany and stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is a good movie. What's that one called? Um, Backbeat, the movie, you mean? Yeah, where it's Stu all Sutcliffe? about... Yeah, 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 like, that is a good movie. It is good, yep. It's been a long time since I saw it. but So, coincidentally, Ryan, I was also at the time reading this book, Hold On World, The Lasting Impact of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Plastic Ono Band. 50 years on, on Backbeat Books. And do you know why I was reading this book, Ryan? Uh, Because of that sweet uh, combo where they played with uh, Zappa, or is it because of... Look who wrote it. John Cruth? Yeah. Nice, nice. Remember? Yes, of course. Yeah, John's a good writer too. This is a really good book. Of course, we had John on as a guest on episodes 186 and 187. And we'll be talking about him again in a few weeks. Fantastic writer. I just got super into this book. It 
kind of brings you up to speed on John, o John and Yoko's relationship at the time, the various factors that contributed to the breakup of the Beatles, John and Yoko's early avant-garde albums, which they were making while the Beatles were still together, and like just how divisive their relationship was to the general public, and how unfairly Yoko was treated, and mm -hmm. to a degree probably still is. Kind of the second half of the book dials in on the amazing Plastic Ono Band records. That's really what the book is about. John and Yoko released them at the same time with the same backing band. It's basically John's first solo album. It's super sparse, but really emotionally deep, and it kind of gone on to be regarded as his best solo album. The book does a track-by-track -track breakdown of each song on both of their albums. It talks a lot about the lyrical content and the creative process. I just got super into both of the albums. I definitely want to explore further into Yoko's solo albums also. Hmm. I also watched the uh, Classic Albums documentary. You know those documentaries? Where oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Go into the studio and like isolate tracks and stuff like that. Yeah, those uh, are good. Yeah, they are good. There's one on John's record, the Plastic Ono band record. It just really drives home what an exceptional record it is. Especially, like I said, when they, you know, do that thing they do where they put the tapes on in the studio and isolate vocals and stuff like that. And at the same time, that magazine that I subscribed to, Classic Rock, had a cover story on Paul McCartney's solo album. His second, but kind of his first since leaving the Beatles, because he, he did a solo album while he was still in the band, technically. It's called Ram. I've been listening to that a bunch also, and just loving it, so I've been really on a Beatles kick for about a month or two. Wow. Yeah, so that's kind of my spiel, because I haven't really been listening to, to any other records. Holy, man. Or reading any other books, because I'm super into this John Cruth book. I, he's got another one on Rubber Soul, the Beatles album. I'm going to check that one out, too. Yeah. I didn't think you were that into the Beatles, so that's uh, interesting. I'm not. I'm not, but now I am. But now you are? Yeah. Well, cool. Have you checked out, uh, there's another documentary on Disney. It's, uh, I think it's on Disney. It's the Paul McCartney, Rick Rubin one. No, seen that 3, one? 2, 1, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what it is, but no, I haven't seen it. I watched a few of those. Those I don't mind. I haven't watched the Peter Jackson thing. Yeah. It's a commitment, man. Like, I watched it in one-hour increments. Yeah, it takes a while. Yeah. No, well, not for some people. Some people watched, you know, watched it all in one sitting. I, I yeah. couldn't do that. Well, I rewatched uh, SoCal Scenester this week to give you a sense of how unbeatles I was yeah. in my listening. I was uh, fully Orange County hardcore all week. Well, as a music fan, man, just in general, like... It, oh, it'll be, it'll be a good watch, it, I know. It is. Yeah, it yeah, really yeah. is. I'm really resisting, though, asking you the test, though. Like, who's better, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Oh, it's, you don't have to. There is no... It's the replacements, I know, I know. <laughs> Anyways, um, okay, what else do you got? It's the Stones. That's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> replacements win, hands down. All right, so I've got a bit of a spiel log still, because we were doing our, like, year-end roundups and stuff like that. Oh, I got bit. one. I got one, too. I could keep going. I could go, I could spiel for days. Okay, well, save it. Save okay. it. Okay, we already have enough spiel on the Beatles here. Uh, I'm going to do an audio spiel, and next week I'm going to do a bookage spiel. Okay. Get, some, get ready for some bookage next week, okay? Here's the audio spiel. 
some of these I think we touched on over the last couple of weeks. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't completely miss them. Wanted to mention, of course, Super Chunk has got their new record coming out in February. Everyone should go and order that. Wild Loneliness, their follow-up to 2018's Excellent What a Time to Be Alive. Uh, Jim, John, Laura, and Dale are back and really look forward to that Super Chunk record. New on the Tree as well, wanted to mention, there is a new Royal Arctic Institute cassette called From Catnip to Coma. Hmm. Um, it's out on Already Dead Tapes and Records. This, is, of course, is Lyle Heisen from Das Damen on drums. That comes out in February. Definitely go check that out. Also new and uh, coming at the end of January, I believe, is a new Gun Club box set brand. Yeah. Have you heard about this one? I saw it, yeah. Yeah, it's a 7, 7-inch seven box set called Preaching the Blues. Unreleased, hard-to-find tracks, including a 50-page booklet with contributions from Thurston Moore, Mark Lanigan, Henry Rollins, and X, tons of other ephemera. Apparently, it's out on the Flood Gallery label. And I've always been, you know, a fan of the Gun Club, certainly in the last 15, 20 years or so. I, I'm not going to say I was, like, as a teenager, but um, definitely, definitely got like a whole new appreciation for them on the reissues last year. Can't wait for this box set. Yeah. I also missed a couple in my 2021 roundup, and I need to mention them uh, before we go any further into 2022. That 20 happens, man. It happens. I know. So I got I to gotta mention them, okay? Yeah. So um, a band I really like called Meat Wave released mm -hmm. their Volcano Park record. You got to check that record out. It's their follow-up to their 2017 Incessant LP. Um, these are great, kind of noisy, indie, grungy, loud, Chicago uh, meat wave. Love them. Check out that record. I've seen them, man. You saw them live? Yeah. I booked no way. them. I booked oh, them. Nice. Were they yep. good live? Yeah. I'm sure they were. Yeah. I've seen some live footage. It looks good. Wow, yeah, I'm jealous of you. Um, well, hopefully we're going to see some tours um, in the near future here. Meatwave, new record, it's good. Of Love, O-V-L-O-V -O -V is the band. Buds is the LP. New last year on Exploding in Sounds Records. A great band from Connecticut. Kind of indie, grunge, shoegaze. Kind of like a shoegazier version of Sebado or Sloan, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I was really enjoying that Of Love band um record i'm probably mispronouncing their name too though also i missed as part of the 2021 roundup on the ss tree there was a comp that came out so we're getting into for the first time in 2022 i think the comp zone attaboy this one is called i mean alarmed the toulon and pedro connect comp it's actually a Record Store Day 2021 release out on ORG and Parallel Factory. I, I can't remember if we mentioned it at all last year, but I definitely missed it during our SST roundup last week. This is a project imagined by Régis Logier from the Hi-Fi Club and who else? Mike Watt. Hmm. So it features um, obviously members from the Hi-Fi Club as well as the Missing Men, the Second Men, the Rude Ensemble of Toulon, and Il Sogno del Marineo, the uh, Italian band that Watt is in. Cover art by Raymond Pettibone, a 40-page book accompanying it, 
one in French, one in English, translated. It it actually covers the history of Pedro, and it's written by Craig Ibarra. Oh. And uh, it's a really, really cool collab. The, the booklet describes how the two scenes have similar histories and cultures, and that's kind of why they came together and collaborated together, Toulon and Pedro. Very oh. interesting comp, and uh, heavily tied to SST, of course. Yeah, cool, man. And finally, I wanted to mention, I know at the end of the year, I mentioned um, the Frank Zappa 200 Motels box set. Zappa's got another box set coming out, though, and this one I am way more excited for. This is the the Mother's 1971 hmm. box set coming out, chronicling the Flo and Eddie oh, era. You like that stuff. Oh, yeah. It's an eight-disc, 10-hour set. That one, I know, I, I, I like the 200 Motels one okay. There's a lot of, like, audio film type of footage in it, so it's, like, not really rocking, you know? Right. Yeah. This box set is going to rule. It's going to rule so hard. Mothers, 1971. Flo and Eddie, can't wait. So this will be, like, that Fillmore album, kind of. Yeah, it is that and okay. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Fillmore and the Fillmore album, of course, is classic it's and hilarious. excellent. Yeah, of course it is. Mud Shark. Yeah. You know, when I was in Seattle and uh, I was by the Edgewater Inn, I was like talk, telling my wife, "This is this is the place. This is the place." You know, yeah. not just not just the Rolling Stones, not just Led Zeppelin, but Flo and Eddie. Don't you get it? And she's like, "Let's keep going. We're late." Yeah, yeah you know? I'm sure so she was really impressed. She wasn't. She was not. Um, anyways. That's all I got. Some audio uh, spiel log roundup misses from 2021. Playing a bit of catch up and we'll do some bookage next week. Right on. Well, uh, should we repeat our history here? Yeah, man. History lesson part one. Okay, man. Henry Kaiser. We are, are big fans of Henry on the show. Just an artist through and through and oh, an amazing uh, curator of music for SST during this during this era of the label. Um, there's a bit of a spiel on the back of the jacket that kind of gets at that a bit. But just by way of kind of intro, we've had Henry on the show, and this is chronicled a bit, as I said, on the back of the jacket. We had him on first with the crazy backwards alphabet record. That one is SST 110. And then next on SST 118, the Devil in the Drain album. And then there was also the great SST-147, Henry Kaiser and Fred Frith, with enemies like these, who needs friends? Then we had SST-151, the Scott Colby slide of hand record. And then 182, the Everett Shock Ghost Boys album. And then, of course, going way back to SST-102, we had the No Age comp. All those records have got Henry all over them, of course, and looking forward to getting into another Kaiser record. Yeah, I think you missed a few, Ryan, that I had on my list, too. I'm sure I did. Did you say 110? CBA? I did. You did? Cra Crazy Backwards Alphabet, I started that one. Okay, yeah. then you only missed three. <laughs> <laughs> Lay it on me. Uh, 077, Zoog's Rift, Island of Living Puke. Is Henry on that record? Yep. Oh, I forgot. Nice one. 133, Negative Land, Escape from Noise. What? Yep. He was sampled on that? Yep. Oh, I didn't remember. Man, you're good. Keep going. And 137, Zoog's Rift, Water 2. Oh, see, see, here we go. Here we go. 
we'll we'll get to this in history lesson part two. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna completely reveal my inadequacy right now, but Brant is really bringing to bear how he's he's got the Henry uh, show dialed in. So take it away, Brant. Okay. Well, um, does yours have this hype sticker on the cover, Ryan? Mine does not. I'll Mine. Read. Yeah. Please read the hype sticker. Mine is actually like mine is a super beat up LP and I don't have the CD. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to read you the hype sticker cause it kind of sets the table. Nice. New recordings by innovative guitarist, Henry Kaiser featuring extended versions of grateful dead classics, dark star, the other one and Mason's children, a musical journey out of history taken beyond tomorrow where no guitar has gone before. So I, I think that's kind of the, you know, the meaning behind the title. Those who know history are doomed to repeat it because mm-hmm. it's, a co- it's a covers album. Right. Okay, Ryan. So there is a, there, there's kind of two groups of musicians on, on this album. There's what became known as the Henry Kaiser Band, and then there's basically the musicians on side two. Uh, three sets of kind of musicians if you count the bonus tracks. I'll get right. into all of that way later. Um so there's kind of, you know, a revolving cast of musicians. But like I said, the core of what became known as the Henry Kaiser Band, uh, they also recorded a double live album called Heart's Desire, which came out on Reckless Records in 1989. And it has live versions of many of these tracks. So I'm going to l- read you some liner notes, Ryan, from that record that kind of talks about uh, the Henry Kaiser Band. Awesome. Unless you've had a chance to actually see us play live, it might be a bit unclear what we're up to here. I play regularly in seven or eight different musical groupings and irregularly in a dozen more. From free improvisation to Korean music to rock to jazz to film scoring, I'm active in many different musical areas. The Henry Kaiser Band gets together to play every three months or so, and it is one of the activities that I enjoy the most of all. All of us in the Henry Kaiser Band take part in a wide range of musical activities and other jobs. We come from very different musical backgrounds. We occasionally play gigs with this band for the fun of it. We have been friends for many years and enjoy working together in an extremely cooperative manner. We primarily play for dance audiences in clubs. The music in this context is about having fun. We seem to have developed a following of people who like to dance to music that provides more room for creative expression, improvisation, and adventurous guitar playing than the current commercial fashion dictates. We play different songs each time that we play, and we never know in what musical directions and dimensions we will be traveling. People often ask me, someone who is known for radically experimental modes of music making, why do you play so many covers with this band? We do this for the same multitude of reasons that many other creative musicians, from Sun Ra to Jim Hall to The Grateful Dead to Merle Haggard, choose to frequently play standards. That is true, The Grateful Dead always had covers in their set. Mm -hmm. These songs often carry a great deal of historical, cultural, and musical resonances, and we feel a great deal of creative freedom and excitement in exploring and extending them. Standards often carry a lot of personal and universal meaning for the band and the audience. So basically, side one of this record is the Henry Kaiser Band, give or take a few musicians, and I'll get into that. So Henry told me, I got a lot of info from Henry, by the way, Ah. on this record. So Henry told me the Henry Kaiser Band was just a psychedelic rock improv dance band in the tradition that I grew up with, where bands often improvised at length for long sets with the audience dancing. 
maybe 1965 through 69, which the Grateful Dead was only a subset of. The Henry Kaiser band had the same musicians always. Me, as in Henry, Carrie, Bruce, John, Hillary, and TC. He means Tom Constantin, who, uh, who's a keyboardist, who doesn't play on this SST album, but was a member of the Henry Kaiser Band and is on that live album. He played with the Grateful Dead from 1968 to 70. He played on Anthem of the Sun, Oxamoxa, Live Dead, all kinds of live albums, uh, and also a bunch of Henry's albums as well. Mm. Okay, so here's the Henry Kaiser Band, and these are kind of some of the core musicians on side one of this record. Bruce Anderson on guitar. Here's Henry. Bruce was in MX80 Sound, a band we've talked about before on the show, Ryan. Yeah. And I met him when the band moved to the Bay Area in 1978. We had many common interests. MX80, aka MX80 Sound, was a noisy, metal-influenced art rock band founded by Bruce Anderson in Bloomington, Indiana in 1974, kind of from the same scene that spawned that band, The Gizmos. Oh, okay. When they moved to San Francisco, they came into the orbit of the Residence and Ralph Records, which uh, they released some stellar records on, on Ralph. As far as I know, they're still going today. Rich Stim still at the helm. Uh, but Ryan, I wrote this earlier in the week, and I'm sorry to say that I got word that actually Bruce Anderson passed away while I was researching this episode. Ah, oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, so condolences to his friends, his band members, his family. Uh, and actually, Henry sent me, uh, he kind of hastily put up what he calls a requiem for Bruce Anderson on the Cuneiform Records YouTube channel, kind of like he does for his monthly solos that he does. Mm -hmm. It's really good. He talks about Bruce Anderson, their history, and there's some great footage of him, Bruce, singing with the Henry Kaiser Band and playing some great bluesy guitar too. So everyone should check that out. John and Hillary Haynes. So here's what Henry told me. I met the Haynes brothers when we made Marrying for Money. So that's an album, Ryan, that was a, originally came out in 1986, Marrying for Money, but was reissued as SST-222 as Remarrying for Money in 1988. Ah. So we'll get to that. Uh, the brothers are the rhythm section, John and Hillary Haynes, Hillary on bass, John on drums. They were both in the San Francisco new wave band Pearl Harbor and the Explosions, where they were known as the Stench Brothers. Coincidentally, Ryan, vocalist Pearl E. Gates of Pearl Harbor and the Explosions was married to Paul Simonon. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah. And I'm looking... Oh, Pearl Harbor? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did know that. And I'm looking yeah, yeah, forward, yeah. Ryan, to learning did you more. Say, sorry, did you say Pearl E. Harbor? Pearl E. Gates was her Pearl name. Pearl E. Gates. Oh, okay. That was her name in the in that band. I think she changed her name to Pearl Harbor when she yeah, married Yeah, yeah, Paul. yeah. Okay, I was like, no, no, no. He married Pearl Harbor, not Pearl Gates, and the yeah. same person. Never mind. Yeah. Keep going. I'm looking forward to hopefully learning more about uh, John and Hillary in this Hozak book that just came in the mail. The, Which one? It's the Disturbing the Peace 415. 415 oh, no records. Way. Yeah. No way. I spieled about that last year. You got it, hey? Yeah, I got it. There's a whole chapter on Pearl Harbor. Oh, and, that'd be cool and the explosions. read. Yeah. Oh, dude. Nice one. Yeah. Just came in this week, so I didn't get a chance to to check it out yet. Uh, also, interestingly, Ryan, uh, 
John and Hillary formed the rhythm section for Chrome circa yeah. 80 to 83. And they played on two totally underrated albums, Blood on the Moon and Third from the Sun. Yeah, yeah. Chrome. Okay. Carrie Sheldon was John Haynes' wife. Uh, and she was in several other bands with him. That's according to Henry. I looked around a bit. Uh, John and Hillary were the rhythm section on a Ronnie Montrose album called Territory in 1986, and Carrie did some vocals on it. She sang on a Todd Rundgren album from 89 called Nearly Human. Probably many more uh, bands that maybe just never released anything. Wasn't Sammy Hagar in Montrose? He was, yep, in the 70s, yep. Van Halen tie-in, boom. Yep. She's also a vocal coach and a teacher, Carrie Sheldon. And, of course, we've got Henry on guitar, insanely prolific avant-garde guitarist. That kind of takes us through side one. There's a few other musicians I'll get into when we do the tracks, but that's the core of the Henry Kaiser band, minus Tom, who doesn't play on this album. Side one, Ryan was recorded... 1287 through 388 at Mobius Music, San Francisco, engineered by Oliver DeSisso, who was the owner and chief engineer of the studio. Tons of stuff recorded there. Chrome's Red Exposure, Primus Suck on This was mixed there, Dead Kennedy's Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, and In God We Trust Incorporated were recorded there, and a number of Henry's albums. We've seen uh, Oliver DeSisso before for sure. Side 2 is a completely different beast. It's a 30-minute version of the Grateful Dead track Dark Star and the other one, recorded at Radio City Studio, New York, which we've seen a few times previously. Uh, Semantics Bone of Contention was recorded there, as well as the self-titled Sonic Youth debut EP. It was engineered by Oliver and also Don Hunterberg. Side 2. The core of the band on side two is Hank Roberts on cello and vocals, Joey Barron on drums, and Kermit Driscoll on bass, who were all members of Bill Frizzle's band. Here's Henry. We had planned to do it with Frizzle and his band, and Bill's manager forbade him to do it, saying that his career would be destroyed if he had anything to do with Grateful Dead music. The band was pissed and said, let's do it without him, so I called my amazing pal Glenn in. The Glenn he's referring to is the Glenn Phillips, who released the excellent SST-136 Elevator record, uh, who we were fortunate enough to uh, be able to interview for that episode. He's also a frequent collaborator of Henry's, uh, and we'll be seeing him again. Kermit Driscoll is a New York jazz bassist who plays with everyone, including avant-garde group uh, The President with Bobby Previtt and Elliot Sharp. He's played and recorded with David Johansson on both of his excellent David Johansson and the Harry Smiths albums from the early 2000s, and along with Hank and Joey as a member of jazz guitarist Bill Frizzle's band. Hank Roberts is on cello, again one of those downtown New York knitting factory musicians who just played with everyone from that scene and beyond. Uh, Joey Barron is the drummer, another, another big time session guy, and after moving to New York in 1982 he fell in with that downtown scene. Based around the Knitting Factory, joined Bill Frizzle's band. Uh, he was the drummer in Naked City, played tons with John Zorn. Uh, he played on David Bowie's 1995 album, Outside. Okay, so that kind of takes us through the core of the musicians. 
This came out on LP, CD, and cassette, with the B-side of the LP being the full 30-minute version of Dark Star slash the other one. The whole thing is covers, like I mentioned. Uh, the cassette has two bonus tracks. Uh, the CD has six, mm-hmm. which are super interesting, and I'll talk about them as we go through the tracks. Before we get into the tracks, Ryan, do you want to hit me with some Spaceman or maybe the liner notes on the back of the LP? I'll give you some Spaceman. Okay. For, for sure. Here is uh, what it says in the SST catalog. Henry Kaiser, those who know history are doomed to repeat it. Time is a circular path. Walking around it, we view the same landmarks changed only by the light of a different day. Henry Kaiser, assisted by Robert Hunter, Glenn Phillips, and others, does up Dark Star, Mason's Children, and three more historical masterpieces in the light of today. The CD contains six bonus tracks, and I'm not surprised at all that Greg Ginn was uh, pumped about putting this record out, given the Grateful Dead covers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he would have been all over that. Let's talk about the tracks, man. Sure. History Lesson, Part 2. Let me get this out of the way. Okay? Yep. I'm going to reveal something incredibly embarrassing here. Are, Are you ready? Yeah. So, little known fact about Henry Kaiser, those who know history are doomed to repeat it on LP. The labels on the LP are on backwards. Only on yours, man. Is that right? Yeah, mine are on the right sides. So when you look on Discogs, there are other people who have commented that it's on backwards. I think mine are on. I'll have to check mine. Yeah. So it's interesting, though, because on the back of the album, Henry makes mention of the fact that some folks wanted Dark Star, the other one, to be side A. When When I listened to it, and I had never listened to this record before, I put on side a hmm. and the grooves on my side a are dark star the other one and i know nothing about the grateful dead and so i'm listening to it and i'm going okay that must be the track mason's children <laughs> and then oh it kind of morphs into that song the man who shot liberty valance <laughs> that doesn't sound like the andy griffith show at all and Ode to Billy Joe, I know what that is. That's not Ode to Billy Joe. <laughs> and only after listening to Side A, yeah, many, many times did I realize, oh, my labels are on backwards. So hmm. even if you have done almost 200 podcast episodes focused on SST, don't get too big of an ego because you can listen to an improperly labeled side over and over and still not get it until you're like, this is something's wrong here after doing this for two days. And then you figure it out. Well, I'll have to check mine. I mean, I know the songs, Mason's children and, and, uh, dark star. So, uh, so side one actually starts with Mason's children. (laughs) (laughs) Not on mine. Not on mine. Written by Weir, Garcia, Lesh, and Hunter. So this is a Grateful Dead track. Um, the, the Dead were playing this in 69-70. They only played it about 20 times total and then dropped it from their set. So this is still kind of early Dead when they were coming out of their really psychedelic phase and 
kind of moving towards the jammy folk blues rock that they ended up pretty much doing for the rest of their career. I consider myself a casual Grateful Dead fan in the sense that I own almost all of their official releases, like including live albums. Like the one, what I mean by that is the one on like Warner Brothers and later Arista. Mm. And a fair number of the Dix picks and other various live albums, but I am no, by no means a Deadhead. Like Deadheads, listen to the Grateful Dead only exclusively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or daily. Still, great band, and I go through phases where I'm listening to them a lot. And you know, when I say like, I have this is probably the last fifteen years that I got into the Grateful Dead. Yeah, like after you're, after you're a teenager, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I never yeah. saw them or anything. Yeah, yeah. It's like me. Like, I didn't. I wasn't into to the gun club when I yeah. was a teenager. It was in my 20s. Yeah. Uh, this is a song I'm really not super familiar with, and I figured out why. It's only on live recordings, uh, really, that, you know, that started coming out in the 90s when they really started going through the vaults, like the Dix Picks recordings, uh, and only the ones from that 69 to 70, 70 era. Uh, it was written for the album Working's, Working Man's Dead, which is really kind of the shift into the that sound, away from the psychedelic jams that I mentioned. Mm. They did record it, but it didn't come out on Working Man's Dead. Uh, so I, f- I figured the only way Henry would have known about this is via a bootleg, which would have been readily available. The Dead encouraged recordings of their shows and even roped off what they called taper sections for people to record their shows and even ran cables from the soundboard for people to plug their you know, tape recorders into. So I asked Henry to confirm this, and he said, yes, not a commercial bootleg. The Dead let tapes of everything be traded, and of course I had heard it live years before when I was a freshman in college. I had been seeing the dead live since 66, 67. Check this out, Ryan. He said, I was even at the 1966 Longshoreman's Hall acid test at age 13. Ken Kessie let me, me and a pal in the back door for free. Whoa. Yeah. So what was that show? You know, like those acid tests that like the Merry Pranksters were doing. Yeah. All yeah. those beatniks, like handing out acid and stuff and tripping to the dead. There you go. There you go. So... This this song though the way that they did it it just it kind of sounds like a musical to me though hmm. you know what I mean like like a real theater musical song that's what it sounds like to me anyways hmm. maybe I, I'm just maybe I'm just revealing how I'm not even a medium Grateful Dead fan yeah no I can I hear what you're saying I didn't think of it in those terms but I I can see how you how you would think that like kind of a show tune almost yeah, yeah I know what you mean yeah. Yeah, same with the next track. Well, it it's, it tells a story too. Mm-hmm. Also performing on this track is David Gans on guitar and vocals. Uh, Bruce Anderson does not play on this song. Uh, Henry says he's a Bay Area musician, journalist, and friend who had a Grateful Dead radio show. Uh, I also have a number of books on the Grateful Dead one of the most documented bands ever, including one uh, that I never made the connection with until this week, which is co-authored by David Gans, uh, along with Blair Jackson, called This Is All a Dream We Dreamed, An Oral History of the Grateful Dead. He's written a number of books on the dead, and also one about talking heads, actually. Mm. I did like 
the Grateful Dead docuseries. I watched that one. Who who did that? Was it Oliver Stone? No. Mm-hmm. Who did that one? Was it uh, Martin Scorsese? Martin Scorsese. Yeah. It, it was either Oliver or Marty who did that. I did like that series. Yeah. So Robert Hunter Ryan, who was considered a Grateful Dead member but never performed with them on stage, was one of the primary lyricists of the band. He's on record saying uh, this song was dealing obliquely with Altamont, mm. lyrically. Uh, there is a studio recording that I'd actually never heard before that came out on the So Many Roads box set of this song. It's super slow, not great. I'd check out the January 2nd, 1970 version from New York on the Fallout from the Fill Zone album, uh, which has Pigpen on Farfisa. When he was still in the band, he died, I don't know, early, mid-70s. Uh, but that gives it a cool kind of 60s vibe almost. Mm-hmm. that version uh, I'm probably going to get shit from deadheads too if any are listening because some of my facts are probably not oh as soon as I figured out that these were Grateful Dead songs I'm like <laughs> oh man I'm not, e- I'm not even sure if I can say that these sound like musicals or show tunes because I'll probably get <laughs> just lambasted but I mean I don't know that's just what they sound like to me I don't yeah. I just I just tell it like it is I'll also mention, Ryan, that Henry remixed this song for his 1995 album Eternity Blue, uh, which is all Grateful Dead songs. The album was released as a tribute to Jerry Garcia, who who died in 1995. That version has Tom Constantin on organ, and Henry says he prefers it. We're going to get to hear that version when we get to SST 237, the alternate versions EP. Ah. So... Henry's version starts with a great build-up on the toms, and then it just really kicks in. This band is obviously super tight. Oh, yeah. Which is not surprising, considering these are top-shelf musicians. Some... I feel like I feel like Henry would only play with top-shelf musicians, or they would become top-shelf musicians when they're playing with Henry. Yeah, for sure. Uh, someone peels off a killer solo right off the bat. Not sure if it's David or Henry. Usually I can pick Henry's playing out. Uh, a really cool vo- group vocal from Hillary, Carey, and David Gans. Uh, David or er, Henry pointed out a cool, a few very cool things to me that I never would have picked out, uh, but I definitely did after he told me about them, uh, and I went back and listened to him. At the very end of the song, it goes into Veterans Day Poppy from Captain, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band's Trout Mask Replica. Just a little tag at the end that Henry plays. And before that, uh, during the fade-out, uh, he, he says they quote the Grateful Dead's caution do not step on tracks between you know, Mason's Children and that little tag of Veterans Day Poppy. Uh, caution do not stop on tracks is like a psych jam on the Anthem of the Sun record. Hmm. All right, that's Mason's Children. Track two, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I can see the show tune thing maybe applied to this a little bit. Oh, yeah. It sounds like adult contemporary rock show tune type thing for me. But again, like I'm coming off of listen, listening to nothing but Orange County Hardcore all week. So <laughs> so what, 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 what can I say? I don't know. Yeah. So this was written by the songwriting duo uh, Backrack and David. Burt Bacharach was the composer and also the performer, mainly on piano, and his song, songwriting partner, 
partner Hal David was the lyricist. The man who shot Liberty Valance was uh, John Ford, Ford Western, released in 1962, starring John Wayne and James Stewart. The song, recorded by Gene Pitney, wasn't used in the film, and there's a disagreement about whether it was ever intended to appear in it. Either way, it was a huge hit, went to number four on Billboard's charts. Uh, there's a couple of extra musicians on the Henry version. Daryl Anger, who we've seen on the CBA record, and David Balakrishnan, I hope I'm saying that right, on violins. Uh, Daryl was a founding member of bluegrass jazz group The David Grissom Quintet, among mm. many other projects. Also, uh, he was an, or is an associate professor at the Berkeley School of Music. David and he formed the Turtle Island Quartet with Mark Summer in 1985, a string quartet with a bunch of albums that played a hybrid of jazz, classical, and rock. I checked out some of their stuff on streaming this week. It's it's interesting. I actually thought it was keys at the start of this, but it's the violins. We get to hear Carrie's voice here, nice and out front for the first time. She's a great singer. The violins, for me, give this a cool kind of orchestrated feel. Uh, Henry's tone, like when he's playing these country licks, really are a highlight for me. I'm assuming it's Henry. The Stench Brothers really hold the rhythm down, John and Hillary. There is some amazing footage of the Henry Kaiser Band on YouTube, uh, and R Bruce really holds his own on guitar with Henry, so it may be him playing some of these licks. I think it might be him at the end of this song. Then we've got the Andy Griffith Show theme, The Fishing Hole, written by Hagen, Sloan, and Spencer. Herbert Spencer and Earl Hagen were a songwriting team who worked for 20th Century Fox and wrote a number of famous theme songs, including this one for The Andy Griffith Show, which aired 1960-68. to 68. Uh, now, the version, the version for the show had no lyrics. It's just whistling, if you remember. Uh, Everett Sloan, an actor who passed away in 1965 at age 55, uh, probably best known for being in Citizen Kane, he committed suicide by overdose because he feared he was going blind due to glaucoma. Andy Griffith actually recorded a jazzy version of this with himself on vocals in 1961. You can hear it on YouTube. No, thanks. I, I checked it out. That, how's that for research, Ryan? That is amazing in-depth research when you go and listen to Andy Griffith songs. Yeah. I only dove back into the uh, the Beefheart covers, I'll just be honest, on yeah. this record. That's fair. I think it's just Henry's tone on this, but it almost sounds like a banjo at times. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about this one for me is how Carrie kind of changes her, up her vocal style for this one. Almost like the way she sings this almost gives it an innocent quality, I'm going to say, that works really well with like the lyrical content. It is different because, I mean, the song is intended to be like, you know, what a great day, kind yeah. of whimsical. Her yeah. vocals don't necessarily convey that. Yeah. Uh Henry with a cool solo at the end that almost like has a backwards quality to it, like it's looped or something, mm. but I don't think it is. And then we've got Ode to Billy Joe. This is one that was written by Bobby Gentry, who was one of the first female artists to compose and produce her own material 
for country music. This is the song that skyrocketed her to fame in 1967. Spent mm-hmm. four weeks at number one on the Billboard charts, nominated for eight Grammy Awards. It was the title track of her debut album, which came out um, after this was released as a single. It's considered a Southern Gothic first-person narrative about a rural Mississippi family's reaction to the news of the suicide of local boy Billy Joe McAllister. It was also made into a movie in 1976 with the story based on the song's lyrics. In one of his weekly solos from last year on the Cuneiform channel, specifically number seven, uh, the Halloween one from October, he does this song, like a updated version of it. He, he intros it with this huge house cat <laughs> in his hands, just this massive cat. Like an actual animal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, that's cats. that's yeah. not like a guitar playing technique. No, no. He was really using the house cat. Yeah. No, okay. Uh, it features Jill Sobule, I think is her name, on vocals, Wayne Pete on drums, and Scott Colby on slide. It uses footage that, like, while they're playing the song, I assume from the movie. Henry does a super wild solo on that version. And while you're there, watch the footage from the archives. Uh, 1996 with Buckethead on bass. It's just insane. Mm. Yeah, I could see you liking this track, though, because it kind of reminded me of really early Bonnie Raitt almost, too, and I know you're a fan. Okay, yeah, a little bit. Again, I'm coming from this way less educated on this type of music than you are, so if I say Bonnie Raitt, you're like, yeah, it probably sounds more like 15 other artists that (laughs) that Ryan doesn't know about. Yeah, no, it's good. Uh, Also in that episode that followed that one, number seven, uh, the monthly solo number eight, he plays guitar uh, over one of his Antarctic dive videos, you know, that he shoots. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's also footage in that episode of the Henry Kaiser Band at Wetlands in New York City, 1990. That's really great. Uh, there's also two hour-long sets on YouTube live at the Palms in Davis, California from October 22nd, 1989, uh, which is the same show where that double live album, Heart's Desire, was recorded. So definitely recommended the live version of Neil Young's The Loner, which is on the album, uh, with Bruce Anderson on vocals. is just awesome. So this song, the Henry song, has the violins back, kind of to great effect. In the intro to the video that I was talking about, uh, Henry calls, he's talking about the Henry Kaiser band and calls them a psychedelic jam band in the San Francisco tradition. And this song kind of shows that. It's almost 10 minutes long, which I guarantee you the original is not. Two gnarly solos from Henry and then almost a violin guitar duel at the end with, uh, I think, Hillary laying down some bongos. Now, if you're on the LP, Ryan, this is the end of side one. If, you, if you've got the cassette, which I don't, uh, we have Special Rider Blues, written by Skip James and recorded in 1931 in Grafton, Wisconsin. Again, uh, that in the weekly, weekly solo, or I keep calling them weekly solos, they're monthly solos, number 18, the one he did with Scott Colby. It has some footage from Henry's uh, instructional video, Eclectic Electric from 1990, and him and Scott do an instrumental version of this, Special Writer Blues. Uh, This version is Henry with some cool, he's picking blues, you can see him do it in the video, 
and uh, he's doing that thing where the E string, I think, is tuned down, you know, and kind of hit as a resonating bass note. Oh, yeah, like a drone. Yeah, always yeah, love yeah. that. Yeah. And, and then Scott D of Colby is just tearing it up on slide and vocals. It rules super hard. This is a, it's too bad this is only on the cassette. Uh, you can hear it on the digital reissue, like the Bandcamp version or streaming of Henry's 1984 album, It's a Wonderful Life. And we'll also be hearing this on the alternate versions EP. Yeah. So we will get to hear it. Yeah, I was I was happy to see that because I was like, dang it, you know, like when I was listening to this record, not only did I screw up the side A, side B, it's the first time in a long time where I was like, man, I wish I had the CD and I don't. Yeah. For all for all the Beefheart covers. But then I was like, oh, dude, I'm not going to get that track, but we'll get to it eventually. Um, but it is it is interesting. Back in the day, if you wanted to get every track off of this record, you would have had to have bought the CD and the cassette. And if you bought the LP, you'd be missing a ton. Yeah. Well, I'll get to that in a bit, but you actually needed all three. And I'll tell you why in a bit. Oh, cool. Yep. Okay, so the cassette also adds on a cover of Captain Beefheart's Alice in Blunderland here, but we'll get to that track later on because it's also on the CD version. Right. Uh, the CD adds on Flavor Bud Living after Ode to Billy Joe, another Captain Beefheart cover. The original was on the 1980 album Dock at the Radar Station. It was originally intended and recorded for 1978's Bat Chain Polar but it wasn't released due to Frank Zappa owning the master tapes and Zappa was um, in a legal dispute with Herb Cohen at the time over the tapes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a solo guitar piece played on the album, on the Beefheart album by Gary Lucas. Henry's version is pretty faithful to the original, I would say. Yep. Yep. And then on the CD version and on the B-side of the tape and LP, we've got kind of what this record is known for, I would say, the Dark Star, the other one mm -hmm. track. So my spiel here, Ryan, might be about as long as the actual track, so strap in. <laughs> <laughs> so first... Let's do it. Yeah, first the original songs. Dark Star is an early dead classic. You see it credited to the whole band often, uh, but it was primarily written by Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, I think you kind of just see the whole band get credit a lot because it became a, you know, one of their extended jams, mm -hmm. like one of their early ones that they really stretched out. I'd say when most people think of this song, uh, they think of it in the live context and not the studio version. It was released as a single in 1968. You can hear that version, uh, which is only two and a half minutes long on various dead kind of greatest hit hits comps. It was only released as a, as a 45 kind of became a legendary song at their shows when it appeared in a 23-minute live version on their first official live album, 1969's Live Dead. Uh, after 1973, they kind of stopped playing it, and it became a bit of a holy grail for Deadheads. The song became so legendary that it was often referred to as It by fans. Mm. And knowing this, the Dead would sometimes tease the song's intro before switching into another song. Those bastards. Yeah. A cool one to check out is from a 1990 set called Wake Up to Find Out, which came out a few years ago. Brantford Marcellus sitting in on sax, so it's a real jammer. Mm. 
Jennifer Finney Boylan wrote a piece in the New York Times in 2019 on the 50th anniversary of the Live Dead performance at the Fillmore titled The Brilliant Uncertainty of the Grateful Dead's Dark Star, uh, which she called the most entrancing version of its most hypnotic composition. She says it began with the band rehearsing at the Rio Nido in Sonoma County in the summer of 1967. Listening to the music from the next room, the poet Robert Hunter wrote down its first verse. Dark star crashes, pouring its light into ashes. Reason tatters, the forces tear loose from the axis. Searchlight casting for faults in the clouds of delusion. So that's that's the track Dark Star. Then it kind of goes into the other one. So on their second album, 1968's Anthem of the Sun, there's kind of a suite of tracks all collected under the main title of That's It for the Other One. But pretty early on, they stopped playing three of the four sections and just started to focus on the section subtitled The Faster We Go, The Rounder We Get, which is a part written by Bob Weir and Bill Kreutzman. It kind of became one of their most played tracks. Bob uh, wrote the lyrics, said it was one of the first songs he ever wrote, and in an interview with David Gans, actually, said, basically, it is a little fantastic episode about my meeting Neil Cassidy, one of those merry pranksters I mentioned earlier. I wrote the two verses, and that's all there is to it, really, is two verses. And we played the, the gig that night and came home the next day, and when we came home, we learned the new news that Neil had died that night. Uh, It's also the name of a documentary on Bob Weir that's pretty good, and probably still up on Netflix, actually, the other one. So this side of the record, Ryan, this is the one with Frizzle's band, along with John Haynes on percussion and Glenn Phillips on guitar. Here's a few excerpts from Glenn's excellent book, Echoes. He says, uh, when he first met Henry around 86, when Henry asked him to play on his Marrying for Money album, Henry booked some West Coast dates for me because he wanted me to come out and play on one of his records. He also told me he wanted to interview me for Guitar Player Magazine so he could pick my brain about how I got my guitar sounds. Henry's intellectual curiosity and willingness to help others were both hallmarks of his personality and this was the start of a long friendship between the two of us. Then he talks a little bit about this recording in his book. Henry Kaiser asked me to guest on another one of his records, this one. I played on his remakes of The Grateful Dead's Dark Star and the other one, which also featured members of Bill Frizzell's group, and it went on to win a BAMI Award, which is a Bay Area Music Award. Yeah, yeah. The recording took place at Radio City Music Hall in New York City in December when the Rockettes' Christmas show was going on. There's a studio at the top of the building, and during a break, I went looking for a bathroom. I ended up getting lost in a maze of hallways and dimly lit spiraling stairways that stopped at a closed door. When I opened it, I suddenly found myself in the midst of a Rockettes Christmas extravaganza populated with live camels and dancing girls. (laughs) (laughs) As one does. Yeah. Live camels. Sounds like the Edgewater Inn. Yeah. No, wait, that was that was a mud shark. Sorry. Right. right. Uh, Henry has ties to the Grateful Dead as a musician also. So I asked him how he met the members. He said, basically, after I recorded Dark Star and the Grateful Dead heard it, I got adopted into the Grateful Dead family and I had a permanent all-access laminate for all shows from then onwards. 
I got to play live and or record with Bob Weir, Tom Constantin, Phil Lesh, Jerry Garcia, uh, Bob Bralov, Mickey Hart, Bill Kreutzman, Vince Welnick. Never played on stage with the Grateful Dead and never would have wanted to. I was just part of side projects. And I tried to never use the connections to pro- promote myself or my career. That's why they let me hang around. I just served the music. I did get to sit on the side of the stage with Bralov during shows. And he sent me a great piece that he just wrote, actually, Ryan, Henry did, for an academic publication to accompany a Garcia film that he supervised. Uh, The piece is called When Jerry Garcia Met Derek Bailey. He starts by talking about all the amazing and famous guitarists that he's played with, and then he says, uh, Derek and Jerry were his two greatest guitar heroes. He talks about meeting Jerry after the Dark Star recording. He says, we became friends, and I would often meet with him backstage at dead shows to talk about books, films, and diving. I had the opportunity to record with Jerry for Bob Bralov's Second Sight album in 1995. Second Sight is the band. Uh, Henry was a member of the band, and both Jerry and Bob Weir played on the second album with Henry. Uh, Bob uh, worked with the dead from 86 through 95 as a sound tech and kind of an auxiliary musician co-wrote some tracks on 1989's Built to Last album. Henry has a a few collaborations with him that are pretty wild and worth diving into. Anyways, this piece Henry sent me, sent over about him facilitating a meeting between Jerry Garcia and and Derek Bailey is really great. It's too lengthy to to read much more. uh, But at the end he says, My love for the dead has not waned over the years. I have several hundred dead discs, and I listen to one or two every week. I treasure my time with both of these musicians, and I am pleased to have been able to bring them together, if only briefly. There are some cool interviews with Henry on some dead fan sites, if you want to read more about his various collaborations with the members. One I would highly recommend tracking down is the Henry Kaiser Glenn Phillips Guitar Party album from 2003. Uh, which has them covering the Hendrix tune If Six Was Nine with Bob Weir on vocals and rhythm guitar. Carrie Sheldon actually sings a song on that record too. One more thing I'll mention before we get into the track, Ryan. On the CD liner notes, it says, The version of Dark Star the other one contained here is different and longer than on the LP version. You do need all three. Yeah. So Henry told me they did several takes. Both of them are edits but they are 90% different. I'm not sure about the length. The LP is listed at 3055 and the CD the same. Uh, Also, I'm not sure which version is on the cassette. I'm guessing it's the LP version. I listened to both multiple times this week. They're both really great. They're both so long and there's so much jamming, it's honestly pretty tough to pick out or recall all the differences by the time you get to the end. Yeah, But they're definitely really different. Hank Roberts' cello gives it a cool vibe for me. His vocal, it's Hank on lead vocals, just excellent. It kind of reminded me of, like it had a very King Crimson with Adrian Ballou type vibe to me. Oh for yeah, sure. I yeah. can see that. For sure. Yep. Kermit Driscoll on bass, definitely channeling some Phil Lesh with his bass playing. Uh, of, course, of course, Henry and Glenn are just superb. 
They go into the track the other one around the eight minute mark, and that's when things really get wild. Kind of everything drops down into some serious improvising and then just explodes with Henry and Glenn in particular just going off. Around the 21 minute mark, they go back into Dark Star to kind of finish off the last nine minutes or so. Now, the liner notes say special thanks to R. Hunter for additional mystery vocal on Dark Star. So at the end of the song, Hunter adds some additional lyrics on the original Grateful Dead 45 studio version. So here's what Henry told me. I made a cold call to Hunter and asked him if he would do it, and he recorded it on a cassette and mailed it to me. We flew it into the multi-track. And here, here's the, the lyric. Spinning a set, the stars through which the tattered tales of Axis roll about the waxen wind of never, set to motion in the unbecoming roundabout. The reason hardly matters, nor the wise through which the stars were set in spin. Now, I, I realize my description of this track is lacking, <laughs> but it really does need to be heard. It's just super impressive. It's totally epic, ambitious as hell, quite an achievement. Like, you'd have to be have pretty big balls i think to even attempt something like this yeah yeah i agree yeah also the version on heart's desire by the henry kaiser band with tom on keys and carrie handling vocals is really killer it's only about 20 minutes long that one okay also on the cd here's the liner notes this extra length cd contains six tracks not included on the lp or cassette versions of this recording I believe that the CD format is very different from the LP or cassette format. I have added many extra tracks to this CD both to take advantage of the longer and continuous playing time available here and to really give you your money's worth for the extra cost of a CD. Hmm. I have programmed the CD to be something like a concert. It is quite long to listen to in one sitting. You may want to take advantage of the programming features on your CD player to select which tracks to listen to at any one time. <laughs> the total running time is 74 minutes on the cd that's so of its day it is yeah yeah uh, and all but one of the bonus tracks are captain beefheart songs mm -hmm. and they're excellently done yeah for sure uh, the first one is i love you you big dummy a track off of 1970s lick my decals off baby also covered by the buzzcocks ryan mm. Uh, and probably a lot more. Yeah. It's pretty so, fa pretty faithful rendition, though, this one. Yeah. This is the Crazy Backwards Alphabet Band. So a reminder, if you want to know more about CBA or refresh your memory, check out episode 110, uh, where we discuss their debut album and chat with bassist Andy West. Uh, so this is Andy, Henry, Scott Colby on slide, and Michael Maximenko on drums and vocals. If you remember, Ryan, Michael is Swedish. And these vocals, I think, are Swedish. I mean, it it sounds a bit like the Swedish chef to me. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, well, so does Beefheart sometimes. Yeah. It's a cool version, pretty close to the original, mm -hmm. other than the vocals. And Henry's playing is, of course, totally Henry. Uh, it says on the CD, all of the Beefheart covers were recorded pre-CBA in early 1986. So the CBA album was recorded July and through December of 86. And Henry thinks they were also recorded at Mobius in San Francisco. The next one is, A carrot is as close as a rabbit gets to a diamond. 
another off of the Dock at the Radar Station album. Mm-hmm. That one's just guitar and electric piano. Here it's just Henry. Pretty great version. It's interesting kind of to hear it without the piano, for me anyways. Yeah. A lot of people, when they talk about Beefheart, they're kind of Beefheart snobs, but that don't really like Dock at the Radar Station. I've always loved it. It is good. Interesting, I'm just thinking to myself, Ryan, you know, I'm a way bigger Grateful Dead fan than you are, but you're a way bigger Captain Beefheart fan. Very true. Than I am. Mm-hmm. So I guess this has a little something for both of us. Well, like I said, only after I realized my major malfunction did I go, wait a second, I need this on CD. Yeah. I was I was listening to it, unfortunately, on YouTube this week, and uh, I need this Kaiser record on disc big time. Yeah. Because it's very hard. Like, a lot of people cover Beefheart, but these are really great covers of Beefheart. These yeah. are really, really good. Like, you you can... They're, they're Henry, but they're also trying to emulate... You can tell, really trying to emulate some of the different players in these different versions of the Beefheart bands, and it's awesome. It's just awesome. Yeah. Uh, the next one, Alice in Blunderland. It's listed on the back of the CD as Alice in Blunderland slash Mirror Man. Uh, but the tracks have their own numbers on the CD, like digitally, mm. when you're playing it. Uh, the cassette, which I mentioned earlier on, has the track Alice in Blunderland at the end of side two. It only lists that and not Mirror Man, so I'm assuming it's just that one. Uh, it says in the cassette liner notes, Alice in Blunderland was recorded pre-CBA at the Frankfurt Jazz Fest in early 1986. The cassette liner's only, not the CD, also credit drawer feeler on soprano sax. Here's Henry. Drawer is an Israeli sax player who immigrated to Sweden. We had a West Coast tour with his band Locomotive Concrete, all double bills with CBA. That would have been a totally bonkers bill for sure if you've never heard Locomotive Concrete, spelt with a K. Uh, you should check them out. It's basically free dra- jazz pretty sure it's all improvised it's pretty wild stuff yeah there's some wild stuff in norway and sweden hey yeah yeah i like i mean you know this version is really good i was just kind of gushing about how great these versions are but i do love the beefheart version with the marimba like yeah. the beefheart beefheart era with ed marimba playing the marimba Zuthorn rollo all those guys like that's pretty killer stuff you know yeah yeah, uh, this is off of Captain Beefheart's sixth studio album, 1972's The Spotlight Kid. Uh, it's mainly Scott playing the leads on this one. And then it goes into Mirror Man, which is uh, a 1971 Captain Beefheart album, his fifth. It contains material that was recorded for Buddha Records in 1967, but wasn't released at the time. Beefheart later re-recorded the songs for his Strictly Personal album, but Buddha took four of the tracks and released them as Mirror Man. They're four long blues jams, including this track, which is 15 minutes long on the Beefheart version. Yeah. CBA's version is five minutes long, uh, again with Michael Maximenko on vocals. Around the three-minute mark, it breaks down into a part where it's just Scott and Henry, and then the band kicks back in and and it actually goes back into Alice in Blunderland. So it makes sense that they're kind of paired up with the Slash, you know? 
on the CD. And this one also fades out. So there's a possibility, a strong possibility that this went on much, much longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it would be weird to cut the track down by two-thirds fully. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's a great album too, Strictly. Okay, Ryan, then we've got Colors for Susan, a song written by Country Joe McDonald of Country Joe and the Fish fame, you know, from Woodstock with the fixin' to die rag. That's like the only song I know by that band. <laughs> but but here's the thing. When I listened to this song and I went and listened to the original, I'm like, I think I want to check out Country Joe. Yeah. Like, that. this is a really cool track. Yeah, it's cool, yeah. I watched that Woodstock movie when I was you know 13 on pbs and oh zillions of times yeah. man zillions and zillions <laughs> and of course this song right yeah, yeah. what do you mean what do you mean? they're singing about going to die yeah. this is this is so cool <laughs> country joe is another one closely closely associated with that berkeley music scene so it makes total sense that henry would be into this yeah. uh this is the last track on their second album, 1967's I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die. That version has some other instrumentation like drums and bells. This one's just Henry. Uh, as he told me, solo, live, screaming into the acoustic guitar's pickup while I play. No mic on guitar or voice. Hmm. It's a cool version and a nice way to end the album. Now, do you know Country Joe? You're more of like a classic rock guy than me, of course. Like, have you dove into this? Is it worth my time? If I, I should, if I should, where should I go? Or is it all? It's like it's not all fixed in a die rag. It's something else. I don't really. Yeah, I don't really know, man. Okay. I I don't know. I don't really know. Country I, Joe I, and the Fish. Like I, I had a very similar experience to you. Like I said, when I was a kid and watched that movie a zillion times. But like right after I watched that is when I got into punk and I was like, hippies are lame. And, <laughs> and and I wouldn't go anywhere near this stuff, right? I kind of put them maybe unfairly in the same category as that, oh, what's that band called? A band that really annoys me. No, okay. I put them in the same category as that, what the hell's the band called? They have a song that goes, in the summertime, you know that band? <laughs> Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but I like you. Wait, sing it again. So I, maybe, I'm not maybe singing it again. No, maybe it'll jog my memory. Sing it again. Please, not gonna happen. please. Not going to happen. I know what you mean, though. I know what you mean. But like, Colors for Susan, there's something deeper there. Yeah. This track, there's something deeper there. So, okay, I'm going to, I have no direction from Brent. I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. Okay. That's the, the album, the artwork. Uh, packaging designed by David Greenberger. Uh, the underwater photography as is by Norbert Wu. And then the photo of uh, Henry Kaiser on the back holding the national is by uh, Ron Reisterer. I hope I'm saying that right. And that was later used as an SST promo photo. So I, I had a quiz for you quick when I was looking at this album cover. What other underwater photo album cover have we covered on the show that would be the dc3 this is the dream is that the one or is it the good hex i can't remember i'm pretty sure it's that this is the dream and who bonus round who took the photo i don't know his name but it's paul and kira's dad there you go nice one yep uh i asked uh henry about this cover 
That's me 100 feet down at PT Lobo State Park in Carmel, a place where I have 300 or 400 research dives logged. Wow. In that, uh, you know, that article I mentioned that Henry sent me about Jerry Garcia and Derek Bailey. Yeah. About Henry putting them in touch with each other. The kind of bio at the bottom, it talks a bit about his music, but then it says, he is also a diver in the U.S. Antarctic program with 13 deployments so far, working under the 20-foot thick ice of the Ross Sea. Yeah. That so, footage on that monthly solo number eight is, is really good of him diving. Yeah, I know I've only dove like three times, and it was like resort diving Yeah, because I'm so lame. I loved it, and I can totally understand why you would just want to go down and deeper. It's amazing. And the, the photo is killer here. What is that stuff in the background? It looks like a shipwreck or something. Uh, I don't know what's in the background. I know what's in the foreground. It definitely looks like either concrete or long timbers that are being overtaken by you know, coral and the barnacles and blah, blah, blah. But you're saying in the background, I just see kind of seaweed. Is that seaweed? A seaweed in the background, oh, I would say. I wanted yeah. it to be like the tattered mast of like a shipwreck or something. No, no. I think it's a seaweed with like some bull kelp. Bull Wick, kelp. Bull kelp picture. is a, Yeah. No, it's awesome. He's like, come on down and listen to some Grateful Dead and Beefheart for an hour. Man, what a interesting listen all week this was. I got to get the CD. I'm on yeah. it though. I'm really, I'm really mad at myself. I didn't have the listen. I should have had this week because I only had the vinyl and the labels are reversed. Yeah. That was a major fail. Yeah. Some people have suggested to me that Dark Star should be side one of this record so that That's... the listeners would know that I intend it to be taken as the centerpiece and featured item on the LP. While I do intend it to be the featured item here, I do think it is better to listen to it on the second set, so to speak. Many thanks to all of the players who participated in this project with me. Henry Kaiser, March 1988. That's what I was getting at. Like, my version has it as side A. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, someone someone didn't realize that they were putting, you know, they gave the wrong instructions to the pressing plant because they thought it was supposed to be... Maybe. The flat, you know, the main, the main piece on the record. That's what I was getting at when I mentioned Kaiser himself on the record here said, like, people thought it should be side A. Well, it was for me when I listened to it for the first couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, there's no dead wax, Ryan, so let's do the ballot result. Yeah. Ballot result. All right, this is a, this is a Brant pick, so you go for it, man. I know you're all over this record, so do it. Well, my favorites were, sorry, none of the Beefheart stuff. My favorites were uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Ode to Billy Joe, Special Rider Blues, uh, but we have to put on the the Dark Star, the other one, man. It's just so epic. Uh, I would, I fully support that. It's long, though. That was my only hesitation, but if you're in, I'm in. Well, we'll have to buy one of those max length tapes, I think. One, this is a 110 yeah. tape, right? And this is at the end of side two on our comp tape, right? Almost. Yeah. That's okay, though. That's yeah. a perfect spot for it, man. I fill up the second half of side two. I'm in. And for what it's worth, I'd go with the LP version. Oh, even though you can't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. Just a little jab there. Be- Beth, definitely fun to listen to. And, you know, 
Ryan, like I was also listening to this all week. This is the Live Dead with the kind of oh, yeah. classic version of Dark Star. I was I probably listened to like ten hours of just Dark Star this week. You were going full Beatles and full Dead this week. I was, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's what else is on the top of my stack there of you CDs. Go. Yep. Let it be, hey? Yep. I still don't have any Beatles albums in my house. The only John Lennon I have is the John and Yoko with Zappa on it. Hmm. I guess I'm close-minded. Well, maybe my spiel will spark some interest. Well, I will admit, like, that that Peter Jackson documentary is on my to-watch list. I know I will enjoy watching it. I've seen some clips, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to watch that. It doesn't yeah. mean I'm going to do the deep dive into the Beatles catalog, though. Right on. Well, hey, thanks to Henry. He answered a zillion questions of mine this week. Yeah, so great. Yeah. All right. Ryan, what's next week? Just before our last break, we started getting into this band, and I can't wait to get to this record. It's SST 199, the self-titled Run Westy Run album. Can't wait. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.